The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Appreciate that good prayer, public prayer, and trust you'll continue to lift up private prayers for me as I try to preach to you this morning. I want to go to a book that we don't often use, but as I was doing a little studies on it, I, I saw, if I'm not mistaken, John Gill, the great Baptist preacher from the 1700s, I guess, not exactly sure when he lived, to be honest with you, but way back, a long time ago, preached 122 messages out of the Song of Solomon at one point in his life. A series of 122 messages. So I want you to turn with me to the Song of Solomon this morning. And I also want to tell you that um, I believe the Lord, you know, often we hear about how preachers are led to preach a sermon. And they, I've heard preachers say, oh, I don't let any events that occur around me, current events or anything in my life, influence me there. I believe the Lord influences preachers through the events that occur in their lives uh, to a message uh, that hopefully is helpful to the congregation, but I know is helpful to the preacher. So I say that to say that I've had this on my mind ever since I heard about the tragic accident this week. I've had the Song of Solomon on my mind. Uh, the Jews when they began to compile the, New, the Old Testament in the, around A.D. 90, I think it was, uh, at a little place called Joppa in, uh, in Israel, they uh, almost left out this particular book uh, according to the historical record because they said it's nothing but a love poem and, and we really don't want to include that in the canon of Scripture. I am so thankful that the Holy Spirit providentially preserve this book for us in the canon of our scripture because it is one of the most beautiful and comforting books that I know of. Matter of fact, when I heard about the tragedy that occurred with my friend's daughter being killed, one of the first things I thought about was this book. Solomon himself wrote, according to 1 Kings 4.32, we're told he spake uh, 4, uh, 3,000 proverbs and a thousand and five songs. His songs were one thousand and five. And Solomon here who composed one thousand and five songs. Some of you young folks out there have been composing some songs lately. Well think about if you had written a thousand and five songs, but he said this is, according to chapter one and verse one, the song of songs. This is the song of songs. If he had to rank them in order on the hit parade, this would be a number one hit, and not just. I remember when we, when the, um, uh, when uh, we changed into the new millennium in 2000, I guess it was. Uh, they, they, everybody likes those benchmark years, and somebody began to rank the songs of the century and of the millennium. You know, and and I remember, I can't remember which song it was now, but there's a country song that I liked that was number one for the century. You know, that's pretty high up there. Well, this is the song of songs, which is Solomon's. If you went to Solomon today and could talk to him, say, Solomon, what's your favorite song? He would go right here and say, This is it. This is it. There's something about this song that's important to us. And, you know, Solomon was a man like we are, and he had all kinds of uh, uh, problems through his life. You know the end of Solomon. And at the end of his life, he was a bitter old man that had tried everything under the sun and had found that none of it satisfied. 
And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but the Lord used his feelings and used his time of life. And you know, that's the most depressing book you'll read in the Bible. <laughs> because it starts out, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, don't get me wrong, I shouldn't say it's depressing because none of the books of the Bible really are depressing. It actually ends up right and explains, but, but it's depressing if you think about where Solomon was when he wrote it. He was a bitter old man who had tried everything and had become an idolater and all of this. And he finally said, you know, I'm looking back over my life and, oh my goodness, what I did was stupid. And he's trying to teach us something different. And the theme of that book is vanity of vanities. But you know, this book was written when he was a much younger man, when he was starting out on his career. And things hadn't gone sour for him yet through his bad choices in life. And this is the, the theme of this book is the Song of Songs. Oh, what a precious book it is. Now, I want us to talk about it today uh, just a little bit. Let me give you just a summary. Uh, we can't go into the details too deeply because I want to really get to a point here. And I want you to bear with me. I want you to bear with me till the end of the message because I think you'll understand where I'm coming from and why it's so important to us, especially in times of tragedy, to go to this book and understand what it's teaching us. See, this book is about a little Shulamite maiden. Uh, she was uh, not well thought of. She was not high up in the hierarchy of society. She hadn't climbed the social ladder or the corporate ladder. She wasn't, she wasn't a princess. But the king fell in love with her. And, and Solomon, I believe in this setting, is the king. He's the one, he fell in love with this little Shulamite maiden. Verse 5 of chapter 1 She's, she's explaining to us that she's not really all that, you know, attractive. And she doesn't see herself as, oh, well, he ought to love me. He said, I am black, but comely, O you daughters of Jerusalem. As the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon, look not upon me because I'm black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me, and they made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. She's, she's really been put down. It's almost a Cinderella story here. It's kind of like Ruth, you know, kind of like Ruth. She started out as a, just a slaving away, trying to serve the Lord. Not well thought of. Even her own, her own siblings were angry with her. <laughs> she was not really... Uh, very high on anybody's list, but yet the king fell in love with her. And this story is about their romance and their relationship and how that it developed over time and how that uh, there were times when the king was there with her and there was times when the king was away from her. And all through this time, she's trying to struggle through this prison here that she's in. And, and in fact, uh, as our text this morning, I want us to look at chapter 2 and verse 9. And you see what it says here. This is the little Shulamite maiden speaking. She says, my beloved, and, and understand she's talking about the king here. She's talking about the one that, that she burns for in her heart. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Now listen to this. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. And I guess this morning, if I had to name this sermon, give it a title, it would be, seeing him through the lattice seeing him through the lattice see the idea here is that the little shulamite maiden and you, you know we got these these windows here you can kind of visualize it here in this church the little shulamite maiden is behind the wall gives the idea of a uh, of a prison almost and we'll, we'll maybe talk about that again shortly but uh and as she's here inside this building her beloved is outside and she gets glimpses of him through those windows and through the lattices the lattices 
almost like prison bars, you know, but, uh, you know, you get a peek here and there. And I want us to talk about that because this is our situation. This is where we are as a people, as the people of God. We are in a prison, if you will. We are behind the wall. The beloved occasionally gives us glimpses of himself and, and, he, and he prescribes a way, by the way, that we can do that. And one of the ways is by being here in this place together. I, I see him most often when I'm here together with you. And he gives us glimpses as we go through this prison that we call earth, as we struggle through these shadow lands, as C.S. Lewis put it. And occasionally we see glimpses. That's what those Chronicles of Narnia were all about. It was an allegory that C.S. Lewis wrote about Christ and God. And, uh, you know, in, in that book, the emperor over the sea was God the Father, the type of God the Father, and Aslan the lion was a type of God the Son. He's the one that would come into Narnia from time to time, and they would see him from time to time, but not always. He wasn't always there visibly, but he was always there in spirit. <laughs> we learned that through, the, through the, reading those books. Uh, and that's the way it is here. We are the Shulamite maiden. We are here in the prison behind the walls. We are behind our wall, and he looks. He's standing on the other side, often looking in. And showing himself. And we know something about who he is. We know something. He didn't just leave us here to struggle through this life. He didn't just leave us here so that when tragedy occurs, we throw up our hands and say, I have no idea how to handle this. I don't have a clue. You know, many people are that way. Many people don't know how to handle death and sickness and tragedy and problems. I'm thankful and, and, and it, it, thr it thrills my heart when I, when I deal with a family, and as I've done many times in my life, where they actually get it and they understand uh, that, that, that uh, the Lord is there and they understand the things the Bible teaches us about death and they have some comfort and they're not despairing in the death of some loved one or the sorrow of some sickness or tragedy or problem that they're facing. See, we know something about who he is. We know something about who our this this who this beloved is. You know, first of all, we read here in the in, in Song of Solomon that he is a king. He is a king. Look at verses, let's begin reading in verse one of chapter one. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. See, he's a king. Our beloved is a king. <laughs> And over in verse 12, it says, While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. In other words, when she's with this king, uh, she is uh, uh, at her best. You know, she's at the best she'll ever be when she's with the king, when she's with the beloved. I want to say to you, child of God, you're at the best you will ever be when you are with your king. When you are with Him in spirit, when you're walking with Him in fellowship, when you're together with Him, you are the best that you will ever be. So when you're doing that, you can handle anything the world throws at you. Now, I've been where I wasn't walking with him, where I was walking away from him. I was going my own way, and I couldn't handle the things the world threw at me. <laughs> I struggled. I threw my hands up. I get mad. I get angry. I get upset. I get despair in despair. But when you're walking with a king, the savor of your 
uh, ointments is, is the best that they'll ever be. See, that's the king we serve. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14. And that's a, that's a precious verse, by the way. You ever want to know what the book of Revelation is all about? Revelation 17, 14 tells you. Here's what it says. It says, these, talking about all these powers of Satan and the, and the world, he said, these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. I'm a hard shall believer. You know, I'm a hard, call me a hard shell. I don't know if that's exactly where that came from. There's a couple of different explanations, but I'm all right with that. I'm a hard shall believer. I believe the Lamb shall overcome them. For Why is that? Because he's got such a good army. Because we're so good, he picked the best of us. He picked all the strongest and the brightest and the smartest to be on his team. No. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. See, that's our beloved. He's the king of kings. Revelation 19.16 says, He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's God that we serve. That's the one she's talking about here. And I want to tell you something. <laughs> psalm 110 is a pretty important psalm. If you go to Psalm 110, you'll find, and then you read the New Testament. If I'm not mistaken, I know the first six verses, each one of them is quoted either by Jesus or one of the apostles. And number seven, I believe, is referred to indirectly. That's, that's pretty, it's, it's a short little psalm. But I want to say to you, if you've got a psalm or a, a chapter in the Bible where every, in the Old Testament where every single verse is re-quoted again in the New Testament, you better sit up and take notice. <laughs> There's something important that the Lord's trying to tell you there. It's enough if it's in there once, but if it's quoted again, this is a messianic psalm. And listen to what it says in verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, my King, my Beloved, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. You know, when you're sitting at the right hand of the, king of, of the great king of heaven, you're not sitting in a little fold-up chair. You're not sitting on a little stool, you know. You're not, sit down there, boy. And sit. When you're sitting at the right hand of the Father on high, who is the king of glory, who is the king of heaven, guess what you're sitting on? You're sitting on a throne. You're sitting on a throne. And, and you're going to sit on a throne not as, a, uh, not as just some kind of uh, figurehead. He's not up there saying, well, you sit there, but you don't have any power. When you sit at the right hand of the king, you've got power. You know, when you see somebody, I guess the, the analogy for us in our democracy would be the White House chief of staff. You know, the, the president's the president. <clears throat> but I can't say I can't walk up to him and say anything to him. They, they tackle me and sick the dogs on me and all that kind of stuff before I got halfway across the White House lawn. Uh, so, but the chief of staff, if I could get to him, I can get to the president, see? The chief of staff in our day is akin to this, but this is Jesus Christ. Our beloved is sitting at the right hand of the Father on high. And let me just say this to you. He is not waiting to rule and reign one day. He is ruling and reigning right now. I mean, he's got a kingdom. <laughs> he's got a kingdom right now. He, you know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, according to <laughs> Jesus himself. But John the Baptist first said it. He's ruling and reigning right now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father on high. 
You remember Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, that great messianic prophecy says, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. And it's up to you to make it happen? No, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. I like that. See, he's ruling and reigning today. He is a king. Hebrews 1.8 says, Under the sun he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. <laughs> now notice what he's saying here, and it's important not to miss that. God the Father says to the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. You see? That tells me something important about my beloved. He's not any less than God. In fact, He is God Himself. He is God. God the Son and God the Father are co-equal. And God the Holy Spirit, by the way, are all the same, just different manifestations of the same person. He is a king. We know something about who this one is that shows Himself through the lattice. And He's also a shepherd. And I like that. He's not just high and mighty sitting on his throne and not caring for his sheep. According to verse 7 here in Psalm chapter 1, he says, Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. <laughs> you see, and he goes on to tell her, you go look by the shepherd's tents. He's, he's got a flock. He's got a flock. He is the shepherd. Isaiah 40 and verse 11 says, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs in his arms. <laughs> And carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. He's not a he's not a cattle manager who drives the cows before him. I have to confess, and I'm bragging a little bit right now, but when I was coming up and me and Tim were teenagers and early twenties, you know, we might daddy try to always try to gently lead the cows, you know, try to call them in. But if that didn't work, buddy, we could drive them. We'd get on those three-wheelers and four-wheelers and we'd start yelling and screaming and we'd throw rocks and all that. And, you know, we'd get everything we could do. We'd get us together. We had us a team. And they didn't many of them get away, let me tell you. Because we'd beat those things and drive them along and we'd, you know, yell at them and scream at them, <laughs> you know, if we had to. We always tried to wait till, till all else failed. But I'll tell you this. There's no driving. There's no yelling. There's no screaming in the flock of the Lord. He said he'll gently lead us. He puts the lambs in his arms and carries them. See, he's a shepherd. He is a shepherd. Uh, in fact, John chapter 10 tells us that explicitly. He says this in John chapter 10, famous, you could quote it, I'm sure, verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, who is on the sheep or not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is a hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. So he's a shepherd. Our beloved, the one that we love, the one that this little Shulamite maiden is, is talking about is a shepherd. He's a king, but he's a shepherd. He comes down off his throne from time to time and he leads those little lambs and he takes them up in his arm and he carries them where they need to go and he loves his flock and he knows them. 
And I tell you, even those that are ignorant in great degree of the Word of God, if they've been born of the Spirit, they know Him. They know Him deep down in their hearts. Just like a baby that's born knows the voice of his mother. May not know who she is. May not know uh, what she's saying. May not know much about her, but can know that voice. Whether she understands it or not, you see. He's a shepherd. He's called the great shepherd in 13th chapter of Hebrews. He's called the chief shepherd over in 1 Peter. He is the shepherd. But probably most importantly, and I've been alluding to it all along, he is the beloved. He is the beloved. This little Shulamite woman, that's what she calls him. I think it's 26 times, 26 times in this book, if I counted right, she refers to him as the beloved. Every time she's talking about him, the beloved, the beloved, my beloved this, my beloved, where is my beloved? Uh, let me tell you about my beloved. My beloved is like a young roe or a heart. My beloved is like this. My beloved, my beloved, my beloved. We live in a world where people refer to God in all kinds of ways that really don't intimate that beloved, that belovedness, do they? I've been guilty of it. I'm sure you have too. But God is not a swear word. God is our beloved he, and that word means to boil. That word doesn't just mean that there's a, oh, well, he's another you know, member of the crowd. It's just one like somebody else here. You know, I, I, I know him, but I'm busy over here. No, when you think of your beloved, when you think of your beloved in the way you ought to think, your heart will boil for him. Your heart will be stirred for him. <laughs> you remember the, the, the two... Uh, disciples that were going on the road to Emmaus and the Lord appeared to them and, and He said, uh, started talking to them but He covered their eyes to the point where they couldn't, didn't know it was Him. And finally when He revealed Himself to them, they looked at each other and said, did not our hearts burn within us when we were with Him? I want to say to you, child of God, our hearts ought to burn within us when we have the opportunity to be with the Lord, when we feel His presence, when His felt presence comes into this group here, into this congregation, or, or sometimes on, on your bed at night when, you're, uh, when, when things haven't gone your way. And I know there's been times even recently when I, I, come, I come to the point where I realize I've not been spending time with my beloved. I've not been speaking to Him. I've not been talking to Him. I've not been learning of Him from the Word of God. And I have to stop and I have to pray and, and praise God. When I get in the right frame of mind, my heart and spirit begins to boil again for Him. The Beloved. The Beloved. Jesus said in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. <laughs> he said this is the first commandment. What commandments do I need to follow? Well, there's a bunch of commandments that spring from that. But that's the first commandment. And I promise you, you'll get the others right for the most part if you get the first one right. If you love the Lord thy God with all your heart, there's nothing in your heart taking the plate. You mean I'm not supposed to love my spouse? Yes, you're supposed to love your spouse. But you're supposed to love him or her through the love that you have for Christ. 
You mean I'm always supposed to think just about him? Well, you ought to, but the Lord didn't say that he understands there are things that we have in our minds. We have to work out problems. We have, to, we have struggles at work. But when we're, when we're struggling at work, we should be struggling through the love that we have for Christ and making it work out. I, I'll tell you this little story, and, I, and this is not typical of me, I'm sorry to say. Uh, I'm, I was sort of, I guess I'm, I'm bragging, so it's not going to give me any benefit either. But uh, last night I had to go to Gunnersville, and I was up there, uh, and I was going to be up there, you know, fairly late and come home, about a three-hour drive, and I pull into the place I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, and my battery light comes on. <laughs> and my, my lights start getting dim. So you guys that are somewhat mechanics know that's the alternators going out. And, oh, my goodness, it's Saturday night. It's 5.30. It's, uh, I'm three hours from home. I calculated up that with the towing that I get through AAA, I still would have to pay $300 to be towed home. And so, uh, you know, I was I was getting ready to freak out, you know, and just flip out like some of the kids know how I do, you know, just, oh, it's over. I can't do that. What do I got to do? You know, just kind of go nuts. Uh, start, anyway, call them up. You know, see, my, my poor wife and children too to some extent they get all that you know I, I never do that to y'all you know you come up to me and say brother Chris what are you going to do well we'll trust in the Lord he'll take care of us and then I call Sherry and say what am I going to do you know it's just like you know I'm just kind of going that's my normal way I'm sorry to say I don't say that in pride I say that in shame you know that's my normal reaction that's where I want to go each time but you know I've been sitting there for a couple of hours already I'd gotten up there early didn't have anything else I could do so I was sitting there and I was reading this preparing for today and just reading through this and all that. And I said, you know, you know, I think the Lord's going to take care of me one way. Even if I have to ride with a tow truck driver three hours to get home, you know, maybe I can share the word with him, you know. And all of that ultimately worked out. They were able to get, the sheriff had somebody he knew was able to come in. They were able to put in an a, a alternator and get everything done during the whole time that I was Going up there to this meeting, I got to go to the meeting and the Lord just took care of me. <laughs> you see, I had a problem that normally I would, in my mind, I would have said, okay, Lord, I know you can't handle this, so I'm going to freak out about it. You know? <laughs> he didn't say you don't think about it. Now, I didn't quit thinking about it. I didn't say either. I didn't just say, Lord, I'm going in here. I expect the alternator to be fixed when I get back out. You know, I didn't say that either, did I? <laughs> And you can't do it that way. The Lord doesn't expect that either. I was thinking about my problem, but I was thinking about it through, through the vision of the Scriptures. and through the. See, that's how you love the Lord with your mind. He didn't mean you just sit around on a mountaintop with your legs crossed, humming, thinking about God. You know, That's what people missed in those olden days. You're not supposed to be a hermit. You're supposed to deal with real-world problems and think about them, but think about it through the Lord. Now, I say all that again. Let me just say, I'm not boasting because that's probably the first time in months <laughs> I've done it that way, in the right kind of way. And I, but that's the way we should, uh, should approach it. See, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And that means your life. That means the stuff you do, everything you're doing. Love the Lord your God in that way and with all your strength. All your strength. It's okay to try to be the best uh, Olympic athlete you can be. <clears throat> it's okay. You know, pardon me, those of you that aren't Alabama fans, and I'm not trying to rub anything in here, but but I was impressed with that quarterback that came out there and played the second half in that game 
in a wonderful way. Because you know why I was impressed? I was impressed with his abilities. But I noticed when they started questioning him after the game, they said, how were you feeling? What were you doing? He didn't answer that question. He didn't say anything about it. He said, the first thing I want to do is I want to give all glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's other athletes. I just remember that one. I mean, others, there's, there's even some Auburn athletes that do that, Brother Roger, I'm sure. But anyway, I'm just kidding. There's, there's others in other places that do that. I'm just thinking about him because there's so much on my mind. It was okay for him to be a great quarterback. It's okay for you to put your efforts into things in this life as long as you're giving God the glory for it. As long as you're remembering that, you see. He is our beloved. And likewise, His love for us is such that He will never leave us or forsake us. You know, 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love that the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. See, His love for us is even greater than our love for Him should be. And we know something about what He is. We know something about some of His characteristics. We know something about what He is. He is unique. <laughs> Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. Or verse 1, just to get the context. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Now look, she's talking about here her, her, her fiancé, the one she's betrothed to and ultimately marries. Verse 3, as the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons, I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. I don't think ever in my life, in this area at least, I've been walking in the woods and I came upon an apple tree. If you've got an apple tree somewhere in your, in your, on your place, you planted it there. And it's usually in an orchard. But see, <clears throat> I walk among the woods, and I know... Uh, some of you, Brother Seth, and you know, was interested in the in in, in forestry and, and it's in forestry, and you see all these trees, and they're they're, you know, and they are unique and they're neat to see them. But but you know, when you're walking through the woods, you got an oak, you got an elm, you got a, they're all pretty much alike. You know, you might have an evergreen tree here, and all, but but can you imagine walking through the woods and you come upon an apple tree? Maybe you've been walking a while. Maybe you're thirsty. Maybe you're hungry at this point, and you come upon an apple tree. And, and, and immediately that apple tree stands out from the rest of the woods, from the rest of the trees in the forest. You see, our beloved is like that apple tree. As the apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. He's unique. He's different. He's not the same as everybody else. Most of the gods of the pantheon of gods that the pagans worship are just about the same. In fact, if you go to the Greek mythology and you compare it to the Roman mythology, a lot of those, uh, a lot of those uh, gods just kind of you know, blend over. You got Zeus in Greece, but you had Jupiter in Rome, and they're about the same, you see. Not our God. Not our beloved. Our beloved is unique. <laughs> In fact, he's so unique that Isaiah tells us in chapter 46 that there is none like him. Listen to what he says. And he asks the question first in chapter 46 and uh, in verse 5. He says, uh, To whom will ye liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be like? He's asking you that, child of God. Who are you going to compare God to? Everybody you know. I can look at, you know, I, was, I, I noticed this. Uh, Yesterday, I forget where I stopped. Uh, but anyway, I stopped somewhere and I went down the aisle of one of the stores looking for something. And, and, I, and I saw somebody and I said, man, that person looks like somebody I know. 
And I couldn't remember who it was, you know, I was trying to place them. I said, that's not them, but they look, they look so much alike. Did that last week. I had a guy stared him down. I know he thought I was crazy. Is that so-and-so? Anyway, but, I, but you know, you do that. You say, well, I'm going to describe uh, Brother Buddy. You know, he's, he's tall, you know. So, so I see somebody else and trying to tell Sherry, well, what's, tell, me, tell me about it. Well, he's tall like Brother Buddy. He's, you know, maybe, maybe he's uh, gray-haired like Brother Bob. <laughs> So maybe he's like, you know, maybe, he, you know, you start comparing people and you, you st- but you can't do that with God. Say, what's your God like? Well, he's like, no, well, no, he's not like him. Let's see. He's, oh, he's like, a, no, <laughs> no, he's not like him. There's nobody to compare him to. To whom will you compare me? He says, who will you liken me to? And down in verse nine and 10, <laughs> he kind of, he, or verse nine, he, he, tells us explicitly, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. <laughs> He's unique. Yeah. You know, there's many sons of God. He said, I just read you this, the Scripture. It says, Behold what manner of the love of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. There are many sons of God, but there's only one only begotten Son of God. See, Jesus is unique. He's unique. (laughs) And He's powerful. He's powerful. Remember what He said in verse 8 of chapter 2. Maybe we didn't read that yet. Let's look at Song of Solomon chapter 2 and verse 8. The voice of my beloved, behold, He cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. You see, he is powerful. He's desirable. He's not some broken down old man. <laughs> He's not some out of shape guy that uh, she's going to have to help him get to her. He's, he's like a young heart or a row, uh, swift and steady and powerful and able, signifying beauty and vitality. A heart is a stag. A heart is a buck. You know, Austin killed a big buck the other day. They're beautiful and majestic. Our Lord is even greater than that. Daniel tells us that He has His way among the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the land. And who can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? Our beloved has power. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, All power is given me in heaven and in earth. That's, that's a beloved we can cling to. That's a beloved that is desirable to us. He's the, he's the beloved that, you know, I, I love this. I love it. You know those movies where somebody's kind of undercover, you know, and people try to, you know, th- you, you got you got the guy that's, you know, that's that's the sharpshooter. You got the guy that's the the former Navy SEAL, you know, and he comes in the community and and these little old bullies out there they start, hey old man, what you doing? You know, they're going to start throwing rocks at him and start doing all that kind of stuff. No one all the time. Hey, get ready. <laughs> He's fixing the. He's fixing to knock them down. He's fixing to take their names. You know, he's fixing to show his power. We got the ultimate in that. Because see, our beloved was standing before a man named Pilate one day. And Pilate said, don't you know I can kill you? I love, I'm telling you, those movies are awesome. Because don't you know Clint Eastwood, you know, he comes in and he's like, you know, they, they're threatening him. He just stands there. He didn't do anything. Next thing you know, he shot 10 of them, you know. <laughs> Lord's greater than that. Because Pilate said, don't you know, boy, that I can kill you? I've got the power to take your life or to spare it. He said, Pilate, you have no power. 
no power except it was given you from above. And he went on to prove it by submitting to the cross. And he didn't just kill eight or ten Romans with one slice of his sword, you see. That would have been exciting, but it wouldn't have helped us. He slew death itself. That's our beloved. He slew death itself in what he did. He's powerful. And he now upholds all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3 And you know, I guess the best way to completely sum him up is chapter 5 and verse 10 says, My beloved is white and ruddy and he goes on, she goes on to talk about it. And Down in verse 16, she makes this statement. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. And this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. There was one time in John the 13th chapter when we read about John the Apostle. We're told that he was leaning on Jesus' bosom. We talk about the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Peter chapter 1. I, I long to lean on the bosom of my Savior. And, and we, don't only, we know about who He is and what He is. And, and, and as we close, let me just share a few things about what He's doing. We know something about what He's doing. First thing we read is He's loving His bride. He's loving His bride. Chapter 1 again in verse 2, Let Him kiss me with the kisses of His mouth, for Thy love is better than wine. The love that He has for us is amazing. In chapter 4 and verses 1 through 7, he describes, his, his, he, he describes us, he describes the little Shulamite uh, in, in glowing terms. He describes her from top to bottom. <laughs> and then in chapter 7 in the first five verses, he describes her from bottom to top. His mind is always focused upon his love, the little Shulamite that, that, that represents us. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, where husbands are told to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He is loving his bride. And according to verse 3 of chapter 1 of Solomon, he is drawing his bride. Verse 4, draw me, we will run after thee. John chapter 6 says, no man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him. But John chapter 12 and verse 32 says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. That means all kinds of men from every walk of life. He's going to draw his bride wherever she is. He's going to draw her to him. And he is feeding his bride. He is feeding her even today, 2,000 years after he left. Chapter 2 and verse 4 says, He brought me to the banqueting house, and His banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. That love has caused her to be sick uh, in, in, in heart and in spirit, not in a bad way, but in a good way. He's feeding her. You remember when Jesus had all those disciples together and all this multitude here? He said, I've got compassion on them. He said, because they're, they've been with me for so long. He said, and I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. Beloved, the Lord is feeding His children today. He's caring for her as well. Chapter 2 and verse 6, His left hand is under my head and His right hand doth embrace me. Oh, what an intimate picture of the love and the care that He has for His children. Verse 9, He's behind the wall. He's looking in at the windows. He's checking on. You ever checked on your child when they were asleep, when they were little? 
you know, you put the child down and, and then you, you, I mean, I've done it. Listen, I did it. I've done it since, since this week. I've done it. Just open the door and look in and check on them. See, that's the Lord. That's what He's doing. He's caring for His bride. He, he tell, tells us in Luke, He says, Fear not, little flock, for it's thy Father's pleasure to give thee the kingdom. I'm so thankful He didn't say, Fear not, mega church. <laughs> he didn't say that. He didn't say, Fear not, great congregations. I mean, I'm all for that. <clears throat> I wish we had a mega church in a way. Not really. Not the way they do it in the world. <laughs> I'm thankful for our little flock here. Uh, I want it to grow, but I'm thankful for our little flock. And, and he, I'm thankful that He said little flock. He's caring for His bride. And let me tell you the thing that most encourages me today. He is coming for His bride. He is coming for His bride. That wall, as I've said, implies a place behind which inmates are gathered. That's what that wall in chapter 2 and verse 9, He standeth behind our wall. The implication is, is that we are in prison. But our beloved never gives up. He doesn't say, oh, well, they've locked themselves in the prison. And we did. We've locked ourselves in the prison through Adam and through our own actions on a daily basis. But he shows himself through the lattice. You know, when there's, I see those movies, and you know what I'm talking about, sometimes prisoners of war, and some, but somebody is in captive. Somebody's tied up in a room somewhere, and somebody's coming to rescue them. You know that? And, and, you know, and, and every once in a while, that rescuer, you know, that person's all upset and worried and maybe screaming and crying, and the rescuer just pulls back the curtain and says, shh, you know, here I am. You know? I believe that's what the Lord's doing to us from time to time. He said, listen, calm down. I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to rescue you. Oh, what a glorious thought that is. Now look at chapter 8 and verse 5 as we close. Listen to what she says. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness? You know, we're in a wilderness here. We're in a wilderness. This, this little Shulamite's been in a wilderness. She's been in a prison. But look at the vision here. Look at the scene here. The scene has changed a little bit. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? I raised thee up under the apple tree. There my mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. We experience death in this community in a tragic way this week, but love is strong as death. Not our love. You know, that's what the movie says. Oh, if you just love somebody enough, they'll never die in your heart. Well, that's great. But I tell you what the love he's talking about here is. He's talking about the love of Christ for his people. The love of Christ for his individual little lambs in the flock that he died for. So that on the day they die and the day we're separated from them, that's the best day of Jesus' life, if you want to put it that way. And it's certainly the best day of their life. You know, he loves us so much that he is not complete in heaven until we get there. He will not dwell in glory and leave us behind. Don't misunderstand me. He's complete. I get that. He's all. But He is not finished yet. He said, Who is this that cometh from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? Verse 7, Many waters cannot quench love. I don't, all the storms of life cannot overflow the love of Christ. Neither can the floods drown it. <laughs> I don't care what they have in California. It cannot drown the, blood, the, the, the love of Christ. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be condemned. Let me tell you, he gave all the substance of his house for love. 
He gave Himself. See, he, Jesus said in John chapter 14, He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you home to be with me. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is not satisfied. The Lord's satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ, but Christ will not be satisfied unless all of his children come home. So here's the point of the message. Point of the message is the same point Paul made in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? A lot of talk about death and the sting of death and the grave this week, and there will be a lot more tomorrow and the next weeks to come. But as I've said before, this little girl that lost her life at 17 on Thursday, I envy her. I envy her. I'm over 50 years old. I'll be 51 this year. And I'm satisfied. Don't get me wrong. I want to stay here as long as the Lord will use me. I want to be here and serve my family, serve the church, serve His kingdom. But I've had to wait 50-something years to see my beloved. And I haven't seen Him yet except through the lattice. That sweet little girl broke through the bars of her prison on Thursday night in a horrible, tragic way as we look at it. But she beat me to the finish line. She beat me to the finish line. I envy her. I envy her. Because she is now resting in the arms of our beloved. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.